1: Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. Man, boxing history is what we're about and that's what we got for you today. I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator and fellow fight history fanatic like myself. Dude, Aris, what's up, man? How are you?
2: Everything's good, man. Still on a high from last night. I'm a little tired, but feeling good. Went to AEW last night. Grand Slam was in my backyard
1: okay so that's that's what the high was from okay
2: yes yeah 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 we're about the um
1: <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> um yeah that was that's the definitely like that that high is from that man that was uh, an incredible show uh you know i you realize at the same time man that when you're 37 you go to one of those things and it lasts like five hours and you're just kind of like at the end of it
1: it's like going to concerts hours, dude yeah. It, it, for me, it's like going to concerts, too, because I listen to some heavy shit, and then I go to a concert. And every concert I've been to in the last, like, even 10 years, man, a couple songs in, I'm like, when when is this shit fucking over? What's going on here, bro? Yeah, it's, it's rough, but it's all right, because we're here, we're relaxed. We're here to talk about some history stuff, and we're talking about uh, as great as the AEW show was last night and as cool as contemporary boxing history was, unfortunately... We get some inflated stuff. We get biggest busts. We get the flashes in the pan. We get fighters who just generally don't live up to what we thought they would live up to. They don't accomplish things that we thought they would accomplish in their careers. So that's what we're here to talk about today. And I mean, it's it's a fairly long list. So we're going to have to be choosy, I guess. But we'll go down it.
2: So we we'll end up doing? Um, yeah, man. You know, when it comes to boxing or any sport for that matter, there's always people that when... They make their debut. There's tons of accolades put on them, sometimes unfairly, that they can't live up to, because, um, well, I like, think about it. Like if someone, well, I'm not. I don't think he's really eligible for for this episode, but like someone like Mark Breland, for instance, um, like I'm. Mean, he's definitely not a flash in the pan. But like when he was when he debuted, all right, '84 Olympic gold medalist, only lost once as an amateur, had incredible credentials. People off the bat were comparing him to like Sugar A. Robinson, which is unbelievable when you think about it that's really unfair you know what I mean like that's as high as a a level that's almost unattainable that's basically unattainable for anybody and when Breeland you know and he had a respectable career he had a good career you know what I mean two-time world champion everything that went through and all that but people still today be like oh he didn't really just get the accolades or where he thought people were going to rate you know um, be at the level he thought he was going to reach and stuff like that but
1: and it's, if that's true, that's just saying how much, how great he was as an amateur, you know, even though it's, totally. it's kind of selling him short because he did have a very good career.
2: Totally, very, very much so. So, but I mean, you got guys like that but then what we're talking about is people that just totally off the skids, just didn't even really get on track for that matter. You know what I mean? And lots of people for that, that's that's happened in the, uh, in the sport. And for whatever reason, um, whether it's just like when they stepped up to the next level, they just completely fell apart or outside of the ring issues dedication issues maybe all three for that matter you know there's lots of various issues why these guys just didn't really reach the level they were supposed to but that's what we're here to talk about
1: yeah definitely uh there's like i said the list is long i'll start it out though because there was a fighter that a lot of people mentioned and that you know I, i guess because of the recency bias because it's recent enough that a lot of people remember it and on top of that what it was about maybe 10 or so years ago, 8, 10 years ago, he got in a little bit of trouble <laughs> trying to uh, flee the border, actually not that far from my house. But, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, but he was a fighter that uh, people – not not had nothing to do with my house, by the way. But, no, it was a fighter uh, people were quick to mention when we brought this up and when you mentioned it the other day on social media, Panchito Bojado, man. I mean oh, –
2: Francesco Bardo.
1: He's unfortunately kind of like the quintessential, uh, you know, entrant entry in the into this list. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, because he was really talented, a very very good amateur, but um, the expectations were so high, the focus was so intense that you know he's on the. I think he was on the cover of Ring, wasn't he? Pretty sure he was. Yeah,
2: probably at some point. I don't know. am almost a, positive he, he was. was. Yeah. He, yeah.
1: But in any case, you know it's, uh, and and that's not to say. I mean, back in the day, dude, there were some pretty shitty fighters on the cover of the ring. So it's not, you know, that's not to say that that's necessarily a predictor of greatness. But still, might
2: have been on the cover at one point, bro. (laughs) Maybe
1: there's some head scratchers when you go back far enough, especially. But in in any case, you know, uh, yeah, the the expectations were very very high for sure.
2: And you know when it all started. Correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, but I think when. Well, he's from the 2000, he was from the 2000 Olympics. Uh, he wasn't a part of the U.S. team. He was part of the Mexico team. And he was still young. He was a teenager when he turned pro. And when he turned pro, it was on Showtime. And, I, and that's what I mean. Correct me if I'm wrong. His fight wasn't even scheduled to be televised at first. I want to say that Jeff Lacey was supposed to turn pro on that show as well. Lacey's opponent went to the, um, I think this is a story that Lacey's opponent came to the weigh-in, saw Lacey and decided, you know what, I'm good on this and left. And so Lacey's fight gets canceled. Bajado ends up getting the um, televised slot instead. <coughs> and he makes the most of it. Out of all the guys that turned pro that night, I want to say Rocky Juarez might have been on that card and a couple others. Um, <clears throat> uh, he, you know, stole the show, man. He was dominant. He wasn't fighting a world-class fighter or any world-beater or anything like that. But, like, with the way he just, the poise, the, the combinations he threw, he just looked like a seasoned veteran off the jump. And people realize right away, man, this is, uh, this is a precocious, uh, precocious talent, you know. And it's easy to get excited about somebody like that. You know what I mean? West Coast kid, good-looking kid, young, speaks well for himself, totally can fight, has the skills, um, has the amateur background, and you would think the sky's the limit. So he signed with what? He was one main events roster, um, right? Because I think they had Juarez. He was featured a lot on there.
1: I can't. I I can't. I know there was some like uh, shuffling about, and I want to say main events got a number of those fighters, but they were kind of. There were a couple of like uh, fighters, like um, another guy we might bring up later on, Ricardo Williams Jr. I know he signed with Tabella. Tabella had a
2: lot of the guys from the 2000 Olympics.
1: So Um, I mean, uh, and I think uh, main events. At
2: some point, you had all the guys that turned pro on HBO on the on the um, KO Nation card, that special one they did at MSG. And then you had a few guys like Juarez and a few others that turned pro on Showtime. And they would filter over to HBO as well. Everybody kind of mixed and matched after a while, but that's how it looked in the beginning. And Bahado at first was a Showtime guy.
1: Yeah. I mean, and actually later on too, Bojado was part of that when they had tried to launch when Budweiser got involved in boxing again, they tried to launch that weekend. uh It was either Saturday morning or Sunday morning.
2: That's right. Boxing. Yeah. The afternoon. That's right. I remember that. He was one of the guys that was featured on that Juarez as well, I think.
1: Or yeah, I guess it was afternoon for you, but it was still like morning time for yeah, yeah, on the yeah. West Coast. And I remember being like, dude, this is fucking great. We're having boxing early in the day. Let's do this shit. And it then, then on top have, of that, yourself eat...
2: a bowl of cereal, pack a bowl, maybe two, do some other stuff. again, <laughs> right? a... you back in your chair and watch some fights at 9 a.m.
1: <laughs> I'd have to I'd have to look at box rec to see, but I remember it was that was the one of the fights where he caught a bad cut and he was bleeding to shit. And then, like, in the last round, in, like, the last 10 seconds, he caught the dude with an uppercut that, like, nearly fucking decapitated him, and was right. like, it was like, holy shit! So it was, like, a way to, you know, a great way to end the fight. And Look, dude, he was aggressive. He had a really aggressive style. He threw hard um, where it was, like, he didn't have really great punching power, but he really maximized what, like, every ounce of power that he had, because he was throwing so hard, and it was kind of annoying sometimes because he was one of those like ha ha (laughs) you know fighters like with the fucking you know the pulls like doing wing chung and shit
2: yeah
1: Yeah, it's it's a little it's a bit much sometimes but nonetheless he throw in combination he was exciting uh so it was easy to get excited you know it's easier to get excited about fighters who are Offensive like that, and who throw a lot and stuff like that, you know. And uh, another fighter who I thought was similar even at the time, but I didn't think everybody thought Bojado would be better. But I remember not too long after that, uh, Juan Diaz came along, yes. and I was like, all right, you know, he's kind of like a similar aggressive, you know, throws a lot of punches, makes a lot of noise type of style. I thought he'd fizzle out, but he actually wound up lasting far longer than Bojado. But in any case, yeah, dude, uh, Panchito. Just a whole range uh, of issues that I think, from promotional training issues, managerial issues, finally later on legal issues, but you know the dude just could not keep his head on straight. Unfortunately,
2: and when he turned pro, man, like we said, the the everybody just like put him already where he was going to be a future champion, if not already going to be a pound, future pound pound star already talking potentially, oh, man, this guy might be a sure shot for the Hall of Fame. And I would say, too, and you probably agree with me, um, him and Ricardo Williams were the two guys that were pushed in terms of competition quicker than anyone else. Cotto was pushed as well, too, but, like, um, I would say those two in terms of, like, the television exposure and everything, especially Bajado was the one you saw his competition steadily increase each time he oh, yeah. Speaking. And by the time the in uh, his first year, and they a,
1: figured out, sorry to interrupt, but they figured out really quickly that he was good TV. So they yeah. were like, let's put him on fucking TV. And it was it was a good idea.
2: And by the, and from his first fight was in January 20 of 2001. By <coughs> excuse me, my birthday, in fact, October 13 of uh, 2001. Um, he's already fighting guys like Eliezer Contreras who was 15 and one. His next fight is against Mauro Lucero, who was a longtime contender, and former world title challenger. He blew both of those guys out of the water. He knocked out Contreras in two rounds. He knocked out Lucero in one round. Lucero, again, wasn't a world beater. He was a guy that's been around the block, though, for a long time, a veteran, former world title challenger, and usually wasn't a guy that got blown out very quickly. That play was on Showtime, I remember that, and they were really impressed by how – because I think it was a one-punch knockout. Um, they were still failing each other out, and I think Mahato just kind of, like, really quick, and Lucero just turned, dropped, you know, and was clearly just in distress and had no uh, – gave no reason or any you know um inclination he was going to try to get up so at that point man people were just like holy shit but is was just gonna fight you know a couple of more wins and then he'll be on the vargas track of uh winning a world title before his 20th pro fight and then he yeah, rescued- there were a
1: lot of comparisons there like that and he had like a he had that same like you know, rest of his head was yeah, short, yeah. but then the bangs, yeah, haircut, yeah, yeah. The you
2: hanging know? down, all that—the baby face still going on. You know, kind—he of, still had like slight of a high-pitched voice. Um, I remember in Ring Magazine, he was talking about how much he loved playing tag growing up, and he still kind of did because that's you know talking about how much you know his reflexes and how fast he was. He was like, "Oh yeah, I love playing tag. I love doing this." Blah, blah, blah. Like you know, he was everybody loved him. Everybody was just so quick to think that like you know this is the future. He actually might have been promoted by Gary Shaw, too. I don't know. It was he the main events or Gary Shaw? He was aligned with one of them. But um, his next fight was against Juan Carlos Rubio. And Juan Carlos Rubio, again, not a world beater, but just a rugged individual that had been around for a long time. Fought of who's who of guys at that point. Didn't beat a lot of them, but just a person that, like, you know, you knew you were going to be in a fight with him. He wasn't going to go away easy. And at this point, Bajado. You know, whether he was really showing it on TV, this is still the internet age and boxing. Um, and I would say, like, boxing, uh, what, what's the word I'm thinking of? Boxing coverage, excuse me. And, like, writers and stuff like that. But, you know, I don't, it wasn't as prevalent back then. Like, you know, the boxing scene really giving out the news and the rumors of people acting up and just slacking off and doing bullshit outside of the ring. It wasn't that strong. So people were still on the Bajado train, but I don't think people knew how much he was probably acting up or slacking off outside of it. Because by the time he fights Rubio, um, this is the beginning of 2002 now. He's a year into his career. He's feeling himself, man. Not only is he being shrouded as a future everything in this, and everybody's anointed him as the kings of the world, and he's going to be the king of everything. So he's fighting a guy like Rubio. He's already annihilated a couple of guys of similar stature. He's thinking the same thing's going to happen to him. But it was the complete opposite because Rubio was a badass.
1: Yeah, his um, <clears throat> Bojado style was the kind of style where he was really open, you know, and he was yes. just, it was really clear what he was trying to do. Like, and he wasn't really being that sly about it. He wanted to move in and he had, re- he was really quick. He had, he was really quick of foot, had really good hand speed, but he was just the kind of fighter where it was like, yeah, he, there was not much mystery to what the fuck he was doing, really. And he wasn't really laying many traps. And so, uh, yeah, dude, got <clears throat> running into somebody like uh Rubio the he was just a guy who knew what he was doing. He'd been around the block, and he wasn't dazzled by the hand speed. He wasn't wowed by the stories, and oh wow, you've seen him in the gym, look at this highlight and shit, you know he nobody's giving a fuck, you know, and so when you're you know these guys aren't giving a shit when they're when they've been around the block, which Rubio had. And so he handed him a you know pretty tough decision loss. And I mean, yeah, dude, I, that shit was like uh, I'm pretty sure it was upset of the year. I'd have to look at. I, I believe you're right. I'd yeah. have to look for sure. But I mean, <clears throat> that's how high, how highly thought of Mojado was at the time. That I mean, even somebody like Rubio was like, well, yeah, the guy's experienced, and this kid's not. And even so, people did not expect that type of shit but he came back and actually um it might have been that was it now anyway i'm not i'm looking at his box rec record and i'm just trying to see what fucking fight was that i was thinking of doesn't really matter point is uh he came back and he scored a handful of wins and he seemed like he was clearly on you know on track because especially uh he got with floyd mayweather senior And Floyd Mayweather Sr., he had like totally changed his style and forced him to fight with like his lead glove down in like kind of a shoulder roll type of, uh, I don't know, uh, different people call it different things. But just, I guess, that shoulder roll style, peekaboo style, whatever. Um, And it suited him decently because he was fast and he could handle it. It's just that that was not really the style for him. And then what wound up happening was that he turned into just a far more passive fighter. All of a sudden, he was getting these decision wins when before, like, he was still fairly aggressive, you know, more aggressive than average, but he had uh, been instructed more and more, it seemed, to just box. And, you know, kind of like handle these fighters with his skill and with his speed, which generally speaking, it worked. He wound up getting a decision over Rubio the, uh, the following year in a rematch, which I remember people at the saying, uh, saying at the time, oh, you know, Rubio's got his number. He's not gonna be able to do it. And actually, he, he boxed really well and kept Rubio from doing pretty much anything in that fight. But it was just that it it became clear, I think, as time went on, that it was like, you know, he was struggling with this style. And it, it was a really good example of how uh, they say fighters get caught between styles. And that's exactly what happened with him. Like he didn't, he didn't have an identity in the ring. However you want to fucking phrase that, you know, they always say some shit like that, but yeah, that's exactly what happened to him. And he just kind of froze up in there uh, when he ran into somebody like Jesse James Leah, who at the time was like, you know, the fucking ultra veteran, <laughs> you know, like the dude had been around a long ass time and fought some really great fighters. And once again, was somebody who was like, not going to be, at all, wowed by this shit.
2: You know, it's interesting because after Bajado lost his first fight, like you said, he starts his comeback. Um, he, the the luster that he, you know, obviously the luster that he first had with everybody looking at him was clearly cracked at this point. And I'm not sure if he ever really regained it because, yeah, he went on that, he went on that winning streak afterwards. But like you said, it was nothing really like really spectacular besides, you know, that, that knockout you talked about and a couple other things. But like, he just... It was clearly you know the star that everybody anointed him to be wasn't really you know clearly wasn't going to be reached at that point but he was still clawing back and like you said you know the stylistic change that he was trying to make it just something was just missing it seemed like like his fight with Andre Eason who was a good fighter not a world beater but a guy that would go to distance with a lot of people it was you know underwhelming his fight with um Emmanuel Claudie which was on HBO um same thing it was a Commanding performance, but again, underwhelming. It wasn't a fight that he just like really stu- you know shined in. It. it was just fights that he was winning. The Rubio fight was probably his. Uh, the rematch was probably his best one because he did really you know like you said he commanded that he dominated it from start to finish and put an exclamation point on it. But you know it just something was just not right, not right there. But the Leha fight was his chance to prove it. But like you said, man, Leha at this point former world champion um, after he lost his belt to um, Raphael, excuse me. Um, Gabriel Lurelis, uh in the late, in the mid nineties. Um, oh, it just became in that role after a bit. He, he challenged for the world title a few times after that, but was never able to win it. Lost to lost Azuma Nelson in a rematch, got knocked out by Oscar De La Hoya, Shane Mosley, yada, yada, yada. But everybody else, more or less, he would beat. You know what I mean? Like Le-Leha became like that young gun singer that if you were going to try, if you were going to get anywhere, you had to go through him. And nine times out of 10, he was probably going to beat you because he was a savvy motherfucker. You know what I mean? He just, I loved watching Lehigh growing up. I think we all did, bro. He was just, you know, you knew he was going to get a good, he was just a good professional fighter. Like you just like watched him, man. Everything he did his was- His name was
1: Jesse up. James. And it's like yeah. every, you know, all the fucking kids like cowboys and shit. So he was like, hey, Jesse bro. James, you know. And he That's had the ball head him. and
2: everything. And he was just a good, well, mm-hmm. and he just gave a good effort. You always knew he was going to give the best effort out there and he was going to test somebody. And if somebody yeah. was able to beat him or even better blow him out, then you knew that guy was somebody that was going to be special. Exactly. But if he was able to like blow your bubble, like he did to Camacho junior, who was in all kinds of sorts of messed up, you know, mayhem and Coney Island. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That was where he had a, a panic attack yeah, right there on television. Poor Just kid. like
2: his dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um. It, it was it was it was incredible to watch because remember when Leia Le- 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 was actually not winning that fight too. Camacho was outspeeding him for the first few rounds. But yeah, once yeah. He, caught him, he caught him with a hook or something. Camacho went spaghetti leg for a minute, just like his dad did against Rosario, and all hell broke loose after that.
1: Yeah, he got like the smallest cut on the face of the planet, and then was just like, I can't see. I I don't know where I am. What's going? Who are you? What language are you speaking? again, it was like, bro, what you fucking guy? No, nah, but look, then, I mean when you hear
2: him after the fight, and like when the you know, when there was all kinds of controversy and he didn't go you see him run up to one of his uh, cornermen or his handlers, and he's like, He didn't win the fight, he didn't win the fight, <laughs> what's happening? Like freaking out because he's thinking, Oh, wait, we're going to the scorecards, I should be able to win by a point. And now he's thinking, Hold up, they might stop this like
1: And I remember that actually being really controversial at the time too, because they wound up doing something to like rule it a no contest in retrospect, which like that shit's fairly rare. You know, that doesn't happen almost fucking ever. And people are like, wow. But you know, Jesse James Lehigh, dude, he's a, he's a trial uh, more, not quite a trial horse. He's better than that, but he's definitely a good litmus test type of fighter where you needed to get by him if you were going to be at the big time. And Hey dude, you know what? Bocato didn't, he did not
2: get it man Leha worked his ass and early on bahado was doing good man i think he dropped Leha. this was on the undercard of um uh Gotti, right i think Gotti leonard doreen yeah, so
1: and he looked like he was on a you know on his way to like a quick win or something
2: because if he was going to win that fight chances <laughs> are he was got he might have gotten the winner of that of main event, exactly right? so exactly he he drops Leha early but then again he just like i don't know if it was his conditioning or what was going on with him but he kind of like lays off the gear and he backs up a little bit, and Leha just they like, do it Leha as he was, started out working him. And you can't let a guy like Leha get into his rhythm because if exactly, he does, he's dude. really tough to get on track. And Bajado was just, you know, he got out work, man. Leha boxed him, he outworked him and used his experience to his advantage. and Bajado, again, just it looked like you know, after a while, the kid out out, like you said, caught between styles. He was trying to blast Leha. he was trying to box with him. he didn't really know what to do with him and Leha. Ended up winning him, I think it was like a majority decision or so. A very close decision at that, but still a very, uh, a one that he deserved to win. And that kind of cemented Bahado at that point. As a person, I think he reached the ceiling that he was clearly never going to reach the levels that everybody believed he would um, early on. And (laughs) you didn't, you know, there was still, there was still potential that you thought he could still maybe snag a world title at some point or do something because he was still young. Clearly the talent was there. He just needed to like find that gear in him to, to step it around because like you don't know what the fuck's happening. But you know, soon after that, it just never really happened.
1: I actually remember too, right around that that time after the Leha fight, he gained weight, and I remember there like uh, being a bunch of posts on like you know on the message boards like oh, what, where's Bajado at? And like there would be rumors and stuff like that because he was around like, uh, boxing circles and people knew him and shit, you know, like he wasn't like, uh, he was from, um, he lived somewhere in LA or, uh, I don't remember if it was Oxnard or whatever, but he, he lived and trained somewhere out of LA. So people knew him and people saw him. And I remember he had gained weight or at least that's what people had said. And then people were like, Oh, even within like a year or two, they were talking about him being, you know, such a bust and, Wow, what happened to Bahado? Whatever happened to Bahado? It was like there was these like these topics that everybody would always revisit around this time. When's Mike Tyson going to be champ again? Is is Bayabuchi ever going to get out of prison? When's Nasim Hamed coming back? Uh, you know, is Roy Jones ever going to fight overseas? You know, like these were like the shit that people bring up every other day, and shit. And that was became one of them. Like whatever happened to Bahado? <clears throat> And then finally, he actually came back in 2007 after, you know, taking a bit off, finally losing that weight that he had gained, but ran into my guy Steve Forbes. That's right. And that was another high-profile show. This was like the last bone,
2: basically, that they were throwing at Pajado, basically saying at this point, look, man, you know, you've squandered opportunity, um, your opportunity a few times at this point. Uh, we're trying to salvage you. You're still in name. Clearly, you still have talent, You're still young enough. And I think he was with Golden Boy at this point, right? Because this was the uh, Barrera um, Pacquiao rematch under card. And the reason yeah. why I remember that is because <clears throat> the same night as the fight that no one expected to be good but ended up being awesome, ended up being the fight of the night in general, which was Jamil um Samuel Peter, which took place on Showtime. I was there that night because I was working for Showtime at that point. And I remember running around ringside. It was my first time, first event ever working, like, for a big, big fight. And um,
0: going ringside and asking around for anybody that could do it because. Winning? Anyone who won that fight? I finally found someone. was like, oh, someone let me know that uh, Baharo lost. I was
2: like, really? Oh, wow. And again that was a high profile card that was on the undercard that was hbo pay-per-view forbes i think was um this was soon after the contender so his name was still viable at that point point. and bajado if he was able to win that fight clearly golden boy would have had more plans for him to catapult him either on hbo or another big you know lofty spot somewhere yeah but, again you know after like a quick start and making things well forbes just like Lehigh did was able to get into a rhythm and forbes a lot slicker than most people give him credit for and that veteran role was just able to outbox him and do what he needed to do to win you know a com- not comfortable decision because it was close but definitely a decision that he deserved and that was the one that basically derailed bottle for good
1: <clears throat> yeah dude uh Steve Forbes, dude, he, uh, I'm obviously I'm biased here clearly, but needless <laughs> to say, dude, he uh kind of had a little bit of a resurgence. Cause I remember watching when he lost to Carlos Hernandez and just being like, ah, oh, shit, dude, that sucks. Cause I always liked Steve Forbes, but then I remember, uh, Yodson and Sornantichai when he fought him and that was, I think on HBO and it was like on the undercard or something. And I remember, uh Antichai was one of those guys who like tape was floating around in like the tape trading communities, but most U S fans had no fucking clue. And they were like, Oh, you know, Steve Forbes is going to handle this unknown guy. And I was like, I don't know about all that, dude. I mean, <laughs> I'm not trying to be a jerk, but yeah. And, and indeed he had a real rough night against Sorn Antichai and uh, you know, the, our Thai guy won, but Steve Forbes came back and he actually had a pretty decent little run uh, going up into the contender And he did pretty well on the contender. Did a lot better on the contender than a lot of people thought he could do considering he was facing, you know, like basically junior middleweights and a couple of middleweights due to what wound up going up to middleweight. He did really fucking well. And then on on top of that...
2: Yeah, Forbes is not a big guy at all, man. He was fighting guys two divisions like...
1: Nah. And then on top of that, I remember the Demetrius Hopkins fight... Uh, a lot of people you know were pissed off thinking that Forbes could have won that fight cuz it was a, it was a fairly slow fight but also Demetrius Hopkins was that was another you know disappointment but regardless uh going into Golden the Bohato fight what's that
2: Golden Boy East remember that oh my God, Hopkins to made Golden Boy East the first guy he signed was Demetrius Hopkins i don't think he signed anybody else for it
1: and then like a month later like kicked him out of his house or something yeah literally <laughs> literally kicked him out of his house but yeah and then so i mean it, i guess i i get it dude you he's coming off two losses uh and then he gets in with bajado they probably thought that yeah there's absolutely no way that uh bajado is going to lose this fight he lost that fight and like you said he was with golden boy and to me from my perspective it almost seemed like Oscar de la hoya was pissed cuz he thought that he had something with bajado and that he was going to mm-hmm. get that reclamation project make some money and sure enough, fucking Steve Forbes was like, "Yeah, he did." Fucking snatched in that fucking grab that shit. So De La Hoya was like, "Fine, fine, I'll fucking fight you then." And Steve Forbes broke his fucking eye socket for his <laughs> trouble. <laughs> Sorry, it's funny.
2: And that was a huge show too, man. Good for Forbes for getting that. Oh, he popped, popped him in the eye. Like, and broke that his was eye like socket. Oscars. That was Oscars' gift. I think back to the fans fighting on regular HBO for the first time in years, wasn't it? Yeah, was cool. at Home
1: Depot. It or, uh, yeah, I remember that shit.
2: He was like, oh, yeah, you know, Oscar's fighting on regular HBO. Oh, <laughs> big people, get ready. Should have been happening more often. You know what I mean? Well, you really think Oscar Giori Boy Campus or Oscar Javier Castillo should have been on pay per view? That's a whole other story. But Oscar I'm just <laughs>
1: yeah. thought he could steal on two pound. Two pound gave him the old. Pop, pop, pop. yeah you know the first two or three rounds
2: man forbes gave him business before size obviously <laughs> played the factor in it and i remember the big running story too behind that fight also was that like oscar had um floyd senior um and <clears throat> steve had um jeff mayweather in his corner
1: they're like yeah, oh it's mayweather against mayweather <laughs> Yeah, cause, uh, 'Cause uh Steve had trained with Floyd Floyd Jr. for a bunch of for a number of years in Vegas yeah, and all yeah, sorts yeah. of shit. And yeah. No, I mean and I guess, you know, especially in retrospect, it's like there's not really much shame in the guys for the most part that Bajato lost to, losing to Steve Forbes, very good fighter, losing mm-hmm. to Jesse James Leha, very good fighter, Juan Carlos Rubio, eh, you know, like but he got he got that back, you know, he avenged that loss. So but even so, point being Panchito Bohado, man, he belongs on this list, unfortunately.
2: No, absolutely, man. That's a great opening call. You can't get any, any more solid than that. And that's the first one that most people assume, especially fans. Um, it's crazy to think, again, that the 2000s have already started about 22 years ago. But, um, Jesus Christ, not, I know. Not, it was 22 years ago, almost 23 now. And it's, yeah, Bohado <laughs> was at the, the beginning of it, man, when, around 2001. Out of the Olympics, there was no bigger one than Bajado. He was even hotter than Ricardo Williams Jr., who I guess is a good segue to bring in for the next one. Because when you really think about overhyped trains, man, Williams was on that same path as Bajado, man. When it came out of the 2000 Olympics, those were the two guys that everyone was talking about. And when you think about it, because I think they're around the same division, um, I don't remember it being discussed so much, kind of like the 96 team where they were like having David Reed and um, Fernando Vargas kind of, you know, going on a collision course. But, like, you got the sense, man. As more as more time would pass, you would think, how's Bahado going to do against Miguel Cotto? How's Bahado going to do against Ricardo Williams Jr.? How's Bahado going to do against um, another guy who fizzled out quickly? Um, the guy that Cotto lost to in the amateurs. Um, Muhammad Abdulayev.
1: Oh, yeah. Abdulayev, yeah.
2: Abdulayev, yeah. Because when he turned pro, he was the Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> he was a major problem that we
1: for a while. And- The other one, too, Kelson Pinto.
2: Kelson Pinto, that's right, yeah. He also, I think,
1: I think he also beat Cotto in the Amateurs.
2: He did. And Pinto was another guy that, he wasn't featured as much as televised as much as those other guys, but he was definitely, you know, in the mix, and then he ended up fighting Cotto on HBO, but Ricardo Williams Jr., um, he was one of those guys, man, I remember him from the Amateurs, because at this point, after the 96 Olympics, you and I have discussed this, um, I would say, you know, already by the 96 team, man, it was already getting more difficult to really catch things live. And, you know, the coverage that back in the day you'd be able to see with U.S. boxing and the amateurs and all this stuff, it completely fizzled out. So I remember as a kid reading in the magazines, people were already griping and complaining. I can't watch live boxing for the U.S. team. The shit happens at random times on U.S. NBC or this channel at 11 p.m. or 1230 in it's Guess what? It
1: still fucking does.
2: Yes, yeah, boxing, absolutely. <laughs> for the for the Olympics, it's it's almost impossible. So, um, I just knew that I wanted to follow a few of those guys because back then, at least, they still did like you know full on features of the like the team that was going yep, on.
1: I remember that. Shit.
2: Other amateur, because I was still training back then, so there was amateur magazines floating around my gym featuring these guys. Other magazines, you know, like it was just, it was time. People were excited about it. And Williams, for the U.S. team, had to hype more than almost anybody else. There was like – he was looked upon as like almost like another Mayweather. You know what I mean? He had the skills, the way he looked. He dazzled everybody, and he had the credentials. Like he dominated the amateur scene at that point. And it looked upon that (coughs) – excuse me. Um, If he wasn't going to win that fight, if he wasn't going to win a gold medal, at least he would just – You know, it would almost be like a disappointment, but by any means necessary, like, you know, he was going to be a sure shot, you know, um, future superstar.
1: Yeah, dude, there's absolutely no question. He was um, among that group and probably at the front of that group, The one of the big like uh, selling points or one of the big talking points or whatever, when it came to Ricardo Williams Jr. was the $1 million signing bonus, the pro signing bonus. Yeah, with Lou DiBella, uh, which at the time was big news because that's a record, you know. Well, and I mean, dude, I understand a fucking million dollars. You know, I had never made, I'm fucking almost 40 years old and I haven't made a million dollars in my life. So, I mean, like, you know, it's, that's massive and to get a signing bonus just to turn pro uh, and it also kind of spoke to also to like where Lou DiBella was at the time too. Like DiBella was just coming off fresh off HBO, and he had done a, he had done a lot at HBO um, in terms of developing boxing after dark. That and was develop- huge
2: news, man. When he when he turned when he left was HBO huge as um, as a figurehead over there because that's like you know he was the vice president of HBO Sports, and then he's dipping his hand into promoting. He's becoming a boxing promoter. And I remember, I'm sure you remember this too. Everybody was kind of like, "Yeah," you know. It was like it was a whole complete turnaround, and it really was like he was like the new guy on um on the block. Cause yeah, he got um I know he got a big like uh, his his pay. He got a bonus when he left HBO. And they gave him a payout for that, and I know he used a lot of that to sign everybody up for the 2000 Olympics. Like he was he was basically trying to do what Main Event did in '84. You know, when main events signed up, uh, Breland and Meldrick Taylor and Pernell Whitaker and Holyfield and um Tyrell Biggs and a couple others, and they all turned pro on that card on M- uh, at MSG. And DeBella tried to do something similar. He had um Ricardo, I'm gonna miss a couple of guys here, but he had Ricardo Williams Jr., he had um Clarence Vincent, he had Paulo Vitos, remember that guy, the heavyweight. I do. Um, he had the other heavyweight there, the yeah, the, the Italian one. dude, yeah, the Italian dude. He had the other heavyweight there, Michael Bent, um, Jermaine Taylor, obviously. And again, I'm probably missing one or two of them, but basically, like, and so he yeah, was
1: Jerson Ravello,
2: that's right, jersen Ravello, yeah.
1: So, a, a number of sorry to, sorry to cut oh, you off, oh. but a number of the dudes who were right around that time were part of that, um everlast campaign remember
2: yes because yeah, 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 yeah. he yeah.
1: signed them to everlast and, and they were like all everlast not all of them but a bunch that of that was them when everlast, everlast
2: made there like was revived for the first time um i don't remember who the guy who the who the president was but like he was a big boxing guy he revived he passed away soon after that unfortunately but um no those ads were definitely dominant man all kinds of big names wherever was popping in the early 2000s you usually see them in the everlast ads of ring yep. at the back of it and they look good too, man. Everlast really cleaned their shit up because they were almost like a non-entity in the 90s and in past decades. But once they got revived, look at what they're at now. But, um, excuse me. Um, so when Carter Williams turned pro, he, another guy, man, he was not babied whatsoever. If you look at his record on BoxRec, there was not going to find a losing record on there. He was one of the guys that like, you know, he was people believed in his skills he already showed it as an amateur and it's a
1: really good way of putting it yeah
2: de bella was quoted i remember this in one of the magazines after he signed all those olympians and they asked him about ricardo williams and and, you know the bonus that he did and he justified it by saying listen people are going to say one day i remember seeing ricardo williams when blah 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 or i saw ricardo williams live blah 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 like that's how he was trying to say it. Like he's going to be one of those generational talents that people are going to look back upon and be like, "I remember when I saw him at this point. And you know, he's dominant. he's winning these fights now, all right? He's a fighting guy' first fight was five and zero. second fight, four and zero. 10 and one, six, twenty five and three. Like, you know, Rodney Jones was a was a longtime veteran, um Anthony Washington. By the time he gets to two thousand and two now on the undercard, of um marco antonio barrera against johnny tapia this was at madison square garden he's fighting former world champion teron mallette i remember that at that point was like soon this was not that long after mallette was fighting um zab judah on showtime yeah um, he was a legit contender
1: at 140 yeah
2: very tough guy man mallette made for good fights but here's the thing though about all these fights ricardo williams was winning them but he wasn't looking spectacular Kind of same thing with Bajado. Bajado was looking spectacular in his fights, but like you said, his style was just like open for him to be outboxed and not worked. And eventually it all happened. Ricardo Williams was outboxing these guys and winning by a country mile most of the time, or if he's stopping some of them as well. But it's just something that was clearly missing.
1: Doing you know? it in like one gear, maybe two.
2: So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and not
1: looking Chicago. that excited about it either.
2: He didn't, yes. It just looked very like mundane, like he was just going about his business, but like a guy that with all the attention that he got early on in his career, you know, early on, with the signing bonus, everything else, he was becoming sort of like a person that in his mind that, like, you know what? Everything's already being awarded to me. I don't really have – I can start slacking a little bit. And if you watch his performances and if you watch his body, too, because clearly he never looked like he was ripped or anything. He always just looked a little saggy and just a little, you know, comfortable around the waist, right? And, yeah, you're just kind of like, eh, you know, there's something just – Kind of miss him here so he beats teron mallette he beats him with room to spare and <clears throat> as after that fight that's when all you know all things um basically went to hell with him because the same thing you know he's starting to get a little comfortable he's kind of slacking off a little bit of training like you said he's only fighting at one gear and that's been enough for him to win all of his fights so now he's got to fight his next fight is against a guy with an unassuming record you know 15 to 6 whatever But an ultimate badass and a dude named Juan Paulo Venezuela, a dude who doesn't give a shit about who you are or your accolades as a former Olympian or anything like that. A dude that's going to be in your ass for all the fight and is going to try to fight you one way or another and is going to make your life a living hell. And if you're not ready for this and if you're not really prepared or, you know, in shape for it, chances are you're going to get whooped. And that's what happened to Williams.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to look real quick to to look at the timeline. So I was like, was that right before, right after? Yeah, it was the following year after he caught Julio Diaz cold on. Remember, he did that shit on uh, Friday Night Fights or Tuesday Night Fights, whatever it was. And fucking, yeah, that shit was like a, a textbook, like get get a dude caught on the ropes. And instead of just sitting there pummeling him, just do a little whoop, like quick little footwork switch. And then you can get him type of shit. And then out of nowhere, uh, Juan Valenzuela was like, you know, all right, give this guy a shot. And he wound up, I guess, just surprising Ricardo Williams Jr. because just enough that, you know, uh, he could punch and he was kind of dangerous. He was wily. He threw like wide shots and was just kind of a, you know, just a. He was awkward. And he was
2: tough. He wasn't yeah. a one punch knockout artist uh, unless he fought a guy like Diaz, but he hit hard enough to make you honest and like to make you cautious enough that put you on the back foot. And like you said, he was awkward and he kept on coming too. you. weren't going to put him, you know, you weren't going to keep him off you unless you could really hit hard. And Ricardo Williams couldn't hit hard, hit him hard enough to really intimidate him to do anything. So he just walked right through it. This was easy
0: work for him.
1: Yeah, dude. It's, it's actually, you know, considering all the uh, accolades and everything and considering where you thought he was going to go dude, like he, he kind of just fizzled out overall, even though his career continued on. It was like... That,
2: was that really was it. I mean, he was never featured on television again. Like yeah, that.
1: like, and, he, um, he still fought, but it was like, oh, he's still fighting. What?
2: But, like, he had a lot of out-of-the-ring issues, too. You know what I mean? Soon after that, like, I think he was busted for uh, for cocaine or selling it or some other stuff going on. And fights yeah. that... And, like, think about it. Like you he said, was, his he was
1: part worked. of, like... He was part of, like, a syndicate that was trying to distribute cocaine through this elaborate FedEx scheme and got caught at a fucking FedEx or some shit. And, like, I mean, dude, it was, like, yeah, yeah. It was a.
2: And look at some of the guys he would lose to, man. If you go on his record, um, soon, like, after he lost to, to, to Valenzuela, you know, his career never got on track again after that. He didn't fight again until the end of the year, scored an easy win over a non-entity. And then he loses his next fight to a guy named Manning Galloway. The average fan's not going to know who Manning Galloway is. But Manning Galloway was actually a pretty fascinating figure. Uh, he was a guy that was fighting since the late 70s. Um, he was one of the very first WBO champions when that title came to fruition in like 88 or 89 or whatever. And um, another dude, even though he was in his 40s at that point, he, he made a comeback. And he was doing pretty successful with it. And this was a big win for him. He ends up losing him because Galloway, like we mentioned with Jesse James Leah, when we mentioned with other guys, even though he's older, he's a wily veteran who always comes into shape. And I would guess you can compare him to to um, Chop Chop today, basically, as a person with like longevity and still hanging in there and age-wise, and you know, will always give you a good fight regardless. Kind of the same thing. And so if you don't come in shape or if you just come in, you know, off focus, whatever, chances are he'll beat you. And that's what Manning Galloway was able to do. He outworked him, he outboxed him, and he was able to win a decision over him. And after he did that, you know, um, he had a few stops and stops and going here and there, but his career never got never got going. And he suffered a couple of really vicious knockouts along the way too. One of them against um, after he made a comeback because he made a comeback around 2008, and then um, won a series of fights again just against nondescript opposition. The way he turned pro fighting all those guys were winning records they're really good records and being shot to the moon now he's fighting guys well you know not losing records but just like kind of meh ones that you would think he would have been feasting on early in his career and he fights a guy Carson Jones most people know Carson Jones as the guy that gave Kell Brook a lot of a couple of tough fights and overall a tough contender not a top contender but a tough contender right
1: yeah yeah definitely not not somebody that generally speaking you should be losing to like you know if you're that talented
2: totally totally and he just got blasted though that was one like i don't i don't know if you can find it online or not but there's like photos of um there's photos of ricardo williams just you know out
1: yeah dude it's the the far the the fall is far that's for sure and totally. that's exactly what happened with Ricardo Limes Jr. Dude, he has he had a lot of promise. And for whatever reason, some fighters, some people, they just can't handle that kind of pressure. You know, I guess those kinds of expectations. I don't know. It's crazy, man. So, like,
2: you know, the 2000 team, they they had some bright lights. And obviously, Cotto went on to have a Hall of Fame career. Um, Rocky Juarez didn't become a world champion, but, I mean, he had a member, memorable career himself as a multi-time world title challenger which is kind of fitting considering he won the silver medal at the olympics um you know and then you know there's jermaine taylor for instance becoming middleweight champion beating bernard hopkins twice and list goes on from like that from that class there was a lot of really good fighters from there but it's just interesting to think that the two guys both of them from different teams from different countries but the two guys that most everybody looked upon to be the future superstars and surefire pound for pound entrance if not hall of famers, one day ended up being the biggest
1: busts of the team. Y2K got him, dude. Yeah, right. Fucking Y2K. <laughs> Remember that? Sh- Remember that fucking shit? Ninety-nine talk about all the time, time, was was a weird time
2: Man, you had Woodstock '99, which I think we talked about that documentary. There was uh, all kinds of other weird shit going on that time. Man, what a weird, awkward heavyweight <laughs> like, division was in shambles. Holyfield and Lewis were going in turmoil. Um yeah, boxing was just a weird everything was yeah, just Yeah, it
1: definitely it definitely took a minute there. for people sure.
2: Mike, people were begging for Mike Tyson to come back. I Bucci, people were wondering if he was gonna get out of jail, like you said. Uh, Mayweather was ascending to dominance, but he still wasn't quite there yet. Um yeah. Hoya yeah. and Trinidad just had that really awful fight. Oh Things dude, that was so bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was that was a strange time, that's for sure. Well, you mentioned the, uh, you mentioned an earlier class for sure. So you got to, I have to mention another Olympian. Cause I mean, this is probably going to be a theme, uh, talking about fighters who did really, really well in the amateurs and then just couldn't kind of meet the expectation in the pros, but Howard Davis jr. Oh, um,
2: wow, good call.
1: You know, it's, and again, I, I guess I should kind of point out that we're not trying to like crap on anybody. We're not trying to kick anybody while they're down or anything like that. We're just trying to like, remember history you know, and obviously making comparisons to other fighters who have had greater success. And on top of that, Howard Davis Jr., considering the Olympic class he came from, I mean, it's only natural, you know, it's, um, you know, he was a four-time Golden Gloves champion, an AAU champion, amateur athletic union champion, a national champion, obviously Olympic gold medalist, 1976 class, and the winner of the Val Barker trophy for, you know, outstanding athlete at the Olympic Games. So he was a big deal, a really big deal. And when you consider that uh, he was Ray Leonard, we talked about this uh, fairly recently. So I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail, but Ray Leonard was the darling of that team because he was like the media darling. Everybody liked him. And, you know, he had a young son and it was a big thing and whatever. Um, And he knew it too. Like he, I think, that's what a lot of people don't like about Ray Leonard. They didn't like about him then, and they don't like about him now, is that he seems kind of manufactured. He seems as though he's ready for the camera at pretty much any moment. And a lot of people don't like Ask that.
2: Anybody from Massachusetts from that era, if they like Sugar Ray Leonard, what? Sugar Ray Leonard, that fake SOB that didn't beat Hagler? What?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's a different. Don't ever walk down the street talking about well, they Ray They also Leonard just
2: too, they say, too, that's why I don't like the guy. He's so phony. I don't know.
1: But I mean, I, and obviously I think they have a point, but regardless yeah, that, totally yeah. that phoniness also helped Ray Leonard become a star early on. but a lot of, uh, kind of pundits and insiders, the people who really followed boxing and weren't just following the media looked at Howard Davis jr. As the best of that class. And, you know, rightly so, because he was in a really, really, really good high skilled fighter,
2: brilliant fighter. Absolutely. Brilliant. I mean, everybody that from that 76 class, the reason why all these years later, it's still looked upon it like so fondly and rightly so is because look at the guys that came from it. Um, Leon Spinks, even though his career clearly didn't pan out, um, was able to, after eight fights, it was able to beat Muhammad Ali. And you, you saw the potential that was there in the Olympics and in flashes of it during his pro career. His brother, Michael, became a Hall of Famer, um, being Larry Holmes, late heavyweight champion, everything like that um sugar Ray Leonard, like you said too man like you know and then you have a few guys too that just didn't really quite they, they had successful careers but they didn't quite really make it the way people really thought guys like john tate who wba champion looked upon as maybe the future of the 80s and for one reason or another probably a prime candidate for a future show one day actually um that's a good point yeah yeah fizzled out but like when you get to a guy like davis leo randolph leo randolph another one that you know he was he was considered a little bit more of a lesser light compared to the others probably because of his size but again he turned pro ended up becoming a world champion yep. himself
1: like and i th- oh, it was wasn't he the first one to get a title too
2: i believe so Yeah, you that's know, it's like he, i don't know if he won it in 79 or eight around there
1: well in any case yeah sorry
2: yeah you might you might be right but um and that was a really good fight, too. I think he knocked out Sergio. Was it Sergio Palmer he beat for it? I think so, yeah. So, anyways, Davis, though, was just considered a sure shot for a world title man. He was just brilliant. He was quick-fisted. Like, this is, his hand speed was incredible. Someone posted the other day on Twitter as a question. They said that Meldrick Taylor had the fastest hands out of uh, in boxing history. And, you know, other people were answering questions, you know, throwing in on Floyd, which was totally wrong. And other various names were getting in there. But, like, Howard Davis has a strong case for having some of the quickest hands in history. Like the dude's flurries and the way he just flew, man, he was, he was an absolute blur and he had good size for the division. He was tall. He was lanky. He had good footwork and everything. It just like, he was just, he just looked like the perfect boxer. You know what I mean? Um, His power wasn't so much like you, he didn't have great power, but he had decent power enough. that again, that like, you know, he can get your respect. He could hurt you. And he threw enough punches, he threw enough combinations with the flurries that like he definitely, if he hurt you a little bit, he could probably take you out of there. And so when he turned pro, he turned pro with a ton of fanfare, just kind of like Sugar Ray Lennon. Both of those guys were the darlings of the 76 team. Um, clearly Lennon was the major star, but, excuse me, Davis was no slouch in that department as well. He turned pro with um, a big signing bonus. Um, Aaron Pryor, who Davis beat to make the 76 team, Always used to gripe that Howard Davis turned pro with a major signing bonus and Aaron Pryor turned pro, uh, turned pro to absolutely nothing and had to, you know, scratch and claw his way and end up becoming Howard Davis' sparring partner after a while. But regardless, Davis turns pro and, you know, he's going through like, uh, like Leonard, same thing, had a similar record, similar fighters. Guys back then, we talked about this before. They don't have great records, all right? Some of them, you know, a little spotty here and there, but most of these guys that they're fighting are no cupcakes. They are really tough fighters. Guys that have been through the grinder, been through the ringer, and 90% of the time will go the distance with you. And if you look at it already, after four pro fights, Howard Davis is already in there with a guy we talked about before, Arturo Tori Pineda. Um, A former, a West Coast fighter, very, very rugged individual, had fought for a world title. And even though, you know, his record at this point, he was definitely on the back end. He had fought a who's who, if you can imagine. Yeah, Bobby and Capone. And-
1: right around this time at the Olympic or the Forum in L.A., yeah. if he was very much a part of that scene, and as if anybody who you know knows, right around that time in the nineteen like early and mid nineteen seventies, if you fought at the Olympic around like lightweight, welterweight, dude, you had you, you you fucking dipped in blood, you know.
2: Yeah, totally. And Terry Pineda was a popular attraction over there. Whether he won or lost, he had a fun style.
1: I want and, to say he was one of Eileen Eaton's favorites. I
2: would say so, absolutely. And there's a lot of those photos from back then. I've seen photos, promotional photos of Pineda. Um, another one of my favorites, Romeo Anaya, who was the Phantom champion. There's a lot of photos of him dressed up as a clown. That was, like <laughs> yeah. his, that was his gimmick for whatever yeah. reason. <laughs> and things like that. But um, yeah, so Davis was able to stop a guy like Pineda early on. But Davis clearly isn't a class above a guy like that. In fact, there's a photo in a magazine I remember of Davis hitting Pineda. And Pineda, who was just a guy that was always wide open for everything, just I think his tongue is open, taking the hit, uh, and his, eyes, his hands are all splayed out. So whatever. Um, at this point, though, you know, we're moving on. He's not being pushed as quickly as Sugar Ray Leonard, but he's being on the fast track. And by the time now, he's, he's fighting a few more of the Storm and Norman Boyds, another guy who has been around the block, not a contender, but a gatekeeper. A tough really guy that's been around um Maurice Termite Watkins another dude who would end up challenging for a world title and fought a who's who at that point a very very tough fighter and um his last fight before he fights for the challenge for the for the world title is against Villamar Fernandez and Villamar Fernandez long-time contender a guy that another in another yeah, era, very, of good fighter. Out, very very good fighter very very underrated in another era probably could have been a world champion. Unfortunately, he came around the era when Roberto Duran was king. So,
1: exactly, you know, you're gonna do,
2: yeah, yeah, unless he had a chance against Esteban de Jesus or somebody else that was holding yeah, the other Either shot. you're
1: getting Pedrosa or you're getting Duran, and neither one is gonna be a fucking walk in the park. So,
2: exactly. But Fernandez was a bad individual, I think he went around 13 rounds with Duran, he beat Alexis Arguello in a non title fight and beat a list of other contenders very very good fighter but um davis gets dropped in that fight you know it was it was it was talked about in ring magazine and other ones it was a close fight it was a tough fight but he was able to to compose himself and outbox him and people thought that was like a good test for him because he got dropped and had to suffer some adversity to get through a guy like that so people felt now he was seasoned enough to challenge jim watt for the wbc lightweight championship and at this point now, it's the middle of 1980, and Sugar Ray Leonard at this point has been world champion. Leon Spinks became world champion. Um, Michael Spinks was on his way to becoming a world champion. So Davis was next to the line, people thought, at basically to, to be anointed and for his coronation. But this was the fight, though, man, that kind of just, you know, solidified his career, I guess, more or less, to put it at a certain level because in a major upset, Jim Walker was able to beat him.
1: Well, and it's, and it's not even <clears throat> some of these fighters. It's like I almost hesitate too, because it's not like he had a bad career. You know, like he, and, and oh, obviously he career. had a terrific amateur career. He didn't have an awful pro career or anything like that. It was just that it was clear that at a certain point, like he was not getting above a certain level. He was not going to defeat the world-class level. And and some of those fights were very close, but he just couldn't quite get over the hump in those fights. Like against Jim Watt, uh, a great Scottish fighter, fought him in Glasgow and kept it very close, which is saying a lot, you know? I mean, especially around this time uh, in the early 1980s when there's a, a real resurgence right around both Ireland and Scotland uh in boxing and so i mean there's a lot of pop uh, there's a handful of popular fighters ken buchanan for instance i know that's several years removed from ken, ken buchanan's reign but still uh still very popular name there they
2: each other too buchanan fought, uh buchanan beat block
1: so i mean it's there's you know, a lot of connections it's here it, it's a it's a it's a really popular time for boxing right around this uh right around this area and in any case yeah dude it, there's no shame and Howard Davis Jr. losing to Jim Watt anyway. Jim Watt's a very good fighter, but it was just like you said, it was very emblematic.
2: It was was kind of surprising too, because even though Davis was going into his backyard, um, this wasn't a fight that was like, oh, you know, Davis got robbed. This was hometown cooking. No, he legitimately lost it. And people were questioning going, wow, you know, for a guy with all his skills, he clearly was like holding something back in this fight. I mean, no, I'm not going to, no credit taken away from Watt. He definitely put on uh he was a very very experienced fighter at that point um he was near the end of his reign actually too i think a couple of fights were um before he ended up losing to uh alexis Arguello in -hmm. retirement yeah Uh, still he's a southpaw awkward guy to fight knew how to use his skills had been around for a very long time a lot longer than davis as a pro and used all of that to his advantage he got marked up a little bit it wasn't an easy fight like you said but he definitely did enough to outbox davis to win a comprehensive decision yeah and davis never the momentum from that that he built early on up until that fight was never really that he never regained it and he don't get me wrong he went on a very long winning streak after that but what's interesting is that he wasn't able for a guy of his stature and being an olympian and everything like that he was never able to get another world title shot for a long time he had to go through it man And go through what he did after that fight from 81. He he
1: hit the deck a lot, dude.
2: (laughs) Yes, he did. Yes, yes, he totally, absolutely did. Um, You know, and he he fought a really uh, who's who of like tough guys after that, man. Julio uh, Diaz, A lot of contenders. Yeah, Valdez. Claude Noel, who uh, ended up becoming champion. And a guy that I'll mention um, in connection with another fighter in a little bit. Tony Baltazar, who actually dropped him, dropped Davis a couple of times. Glenn Coverson um you know these were a lot of like very very tough fighters that he had to go through and he had to fight and you're wondering to yourself man you know is Davis going to get another title shot it's been a few years he's winning all these fights other guys with less credentials and less success than what they've been doing are getting title shots the hell is going on here finally in 1984 he gets another title shot but this time he has the inevitable task to fight Edwin Rosario who at that point probably was the hardest-headed lightweight that people had seen in decades, an absolute steamrolling monster, you know, who was undefeated at this point too. And Rosario was already having a little bit of out of the ring issues at this point and going through other things, but was still a wrecking ball. You know, he had beaten Jose Luis Ramirez for the lightweight championship um for the vacant title. And anyone that was in his way at this point was just getting straight up slaughtered. But Davis, to his credit, man. What he could have done in the Watt fight, everything else, he kind of put everything together in this fight, mm-hmm. all right? And he really did, man. It, it, this fight can be found. Like, he outboxes Rosario, who was a good fighter, a great fighter himself, but mm-hmm. clearly not on the level. When it comes to skill versus skill, he wasn't on the level of Davis. And Davis was brilliant in a lot of the rounds, man. And going in the backyard of Puerto Rico, same thing, yes. Going to the champion's backyard for a fight. Rosario was wildly popular in Puerto Rico, so obviously they're calling for Davis's head. And
1: and Rosario's and an already not like you know the nicest fighter in the ring in the first place. <laughs> nah, exactly. He's a
2: very surly individual who likes to hurt guys and won't mind you know swiping on you if you're down or so either. And so, he can
1: punch too, like yes. legitimately.
2: Like I said, one of the hardest lightweights, um, hardest lightweight punchers in the division i had seen in decades. You know, what I mean, like he was scary, scary power. We're talking when I was a kid on the 30 great one-punch knockouts videos. Um, you see him knock out a poor guy named Roberto Garcia who just lays there and it looks like he was hit with a with a steel pin mallet you know what I mean on his face like he's just in, obviously in pain and then Edwin Virouette, who twice went the distance with Duran and all around pain in the ass for every lightweight that he fought in the 70s got steamrolled by him same thing bop bop a beautiful right hand Virouette goes down and he just clearly doesn't know what the fuck just happened to him his head is just spinning around so This is the type of power, and and Rosario's in his prime at this point, so this is what he has to deal with, but to his credit, man, Davis, even though he gets caught a few times, he's wobbled here and there, he's holding himself together, man, he's being brilliant, he's outboxing Rosario for long spells in this fight, even hurts Rosario a couple of times, Davis is not known as a hard puncher, so that's kind of remarkable, considering Rosario was known for having a pretty good chin, so you know, we get, and this is the thing, man. Davis just had some bad luck, and this is exemplifies it more than anything because now we're down to the very last round. If Davis can win this last round, chances are he's going to win the championship because it's a close fight, but he's performed so well that the judges aren't screwing him here. And then, with only seconds to go in the last round, Rosario uncorks a wicked shot that catches Davis, and Davis gets dropped like a log. And, you know, I'll, 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 this fight happened um, four months before I was born, so I'm not going to sit there and be like, oh, yeah, I watched this on TV. I've watched it years later, and you, seeing you Matt, heard
1: it from the womb, dude. You were yes. like,
2: yes, yes, yeah, from Puerto Rico all the way to New from Massachusetts. You just heard that kaboom, yeah, and you just, you know, you just almost feel for him if you're part of Davis's team or if you're a fan for him or if you were watching that live on television that day. You're just like, oh, uh, damn it,
1: no. Wah, 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 wah.
2: You're like he's this close, and Davis gets up. To his credit, he got up. A lot of guys wouldn't have gotten up, but he gets up from that. And he ends up losing by one point
1: in all the scorecards because of it. Just like you know, split decision. Yeah, yeah. Just Not all so the
2: scorecards, but two of the three cards. Just
1: so like rough, dude. Rough. So rough. Yeah, and that that was his chance. You know, like he he had a real solid chance against Jim Watt. Almost did it. Almost did it. Yeah. But then against Rosario, dude, just couldn't pull it off. And again, no shame. No shame. Uh, it's just that it was clear that by this point though, that like, you know, that's, that's the, that's the ceiling. There is no more, you know, that was his chance. And after that, um, you know, there were actually a handful. If you actually look at his record after that, the funny thing is that there's, uh, a number of his losses and close fights in that draw are against these fighters who also all have like fast hands, yeah. speedy boxers uh you know guys that move really well and stuff like that but just he either i guess dropped off and couldn't hang with them or in one case just got fucking cold cocked
2: it was he had a long career at
1: this point too considering the long 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 amateur career that he had to combining
2: all that he was a little long in the tooth by the late 80s and he was kind of a relic from the past you know unlike a guy like sugar A leonard who had long spells of inactivity because of his eye issues and his retirements to various other things, Leonard was still a major star. Davis kept on plugging along since the 76 Olympics. He never really took a break, you know? And at this point, people had already kind of labeled him as a guy that wasn't going to reach the potential that he, you know, that they allotted to him And um, after the after the Olympics. And he kind of felt for the guy, you know, because clearly he was skilled. Twice he fought for the championship and twice he came this close to winning it. And You just kind of like, damn it, you know, it's just... And now by 1986, 85, 86, 87, it's, you know, his time has gone. His time has passed. Now he's fighting guys. There's a whole new generation there that he's trying to contend with. Like you said, you know, he has to deal with Meldrick Taylor, who was from the 84 team. This is is two Olympics now, past where he was. And Davis now is just known as the Wiley veteran, not a guy that's like a top contender who's really a threat for a championship but a guy that's supposed to test these guys for guys. Yeah, it's come like,
1: full circle because now he's the fodder for the young Olympian who's on Exactly, unbeaten. exactly. You know, Hector
2: Camacho is another one. He loses the decision to Camacho. Um, fights to a surprising draw with Davis and, excuse me, in a fight with Meldrick Taylor that, you know, by all accounts could have gone either way. But, I mean, think about it. Both of their hands feeds going together was kind of brilliant to watch. And his last title fight, he comes in as a late replacement to fight Buddy McGirt and Buddy McGirt, again, a guy that at that point too, that had himself a long career, but a lot younger than um, Davis was. And he was in his prime. You know, he just annihilated him.
1: Yep. At the felt forum, which is, here's a good trivia, trivia question. If anybody's ever looking for one, but Buddy McGirt actually fought the most fights at the felt forum. I want to say it was like 19 or some shit like that. I'd have to look, but it's some ridiculous number but uh felt Forum's was, classic McGirt,
2: what's that I said, was big in new york in the late 80s mid to late 80s for sure oh, very popular
1: and felt forum was a classic venue where uh you know it had a, it was almost kind of like uh almost kind of like people look at Showbox now where yeah. it's uh you know undefeated contenders or guys on the rise or even just like kind of club shows they would put on at the felt forum and shit like that but in any case yeah dude uh just got absolutely obliterated by Buddy McGirt, who was not a bad puncher, but generally speaking, not the kind of guy that he was going to have to worry about getting annihilated by Buddy McGirt. But by this time he got annihilated by Buddy McGirt. So, I mean, at that point, dude, it's, it's done. You know, he he was pretty much done as a uh, pro fighter and as a top level pro fighter at that time. There was no hope, I think after that. And then finally 1996 loses to an undefeated Dana Rosenblatt for the, you know, the this is when they had revived the wbu uh yeah. title
2: that was the that was the og wbu that ricky hatton defended a bunch of times on showbox and showtime <laughs> and all the other stuff
1: yeah because <laughs> um, yeah, they had like had a wbu title It was like in like the 1920s and 30s and shit like that so they were like trying to revive this old forgotten title
2: yeah, it was. I remember that too because, like, Boxing Illustrated, I think interviewed the president of the WBU back then and all this other bullshit. It was so <laughs> weird times. Weird times. Now it's
1: the IBO.
2: Stupid disowned tweet. Look at all the IBO champions that are famous fighters, bro, bro. Really? The IBO has always been one of those organizations that just kind of hands out their belts to like whatever big fight they just want to pass. Yeah, yeah, get out I'm of fucking here. Pass. Anyways, but yeah, that was, that was just a kind of a sad one uh, ending to his career because he has to fight Rosenblatt at, at TD in Boston. Rosenblatt, a Massachusetts guy, um, was being pushed to the moon by Aram. And another dude that really didn't pan out, especially if you look at what Aram said in the Ring magazine after Delahoyer knocked out Rafael Lurelis, that Aram was quoted as saying, Oscar Jolla, Dana Rosenblatt's going to be the highest grossing fight in boxing history.
0: day. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh man. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know.
1: I think you know, he was promoters got gotta promote
2: because I think he was going off of that because of their ethnicities completely.
1: I'm sure. Yeah. Well, you know, they always want they always want the white guy. They always want a white boy. Yeah. they they're gonna go after a fucking white superstar forever till the end of time, till they find one. It's just they they're desperate. But yeah, um <laughs> that's but, pretty it, funny. It's,
2: Howard Davis, after his career ended, um, became a very respected mm-hmm. trainer. Uh for one his kid Diet Davis um became a French contender. And I, I think he also worked with uh he was one of the early guys to work in the UFC and MMA general, yep. correct?
1: Yeah. And he I, I think he worked with American top team yeah. in the UFC. Uh so he worked with a whole bunch of mixed martial artists like like top level mixed martial artists talking striking
2: and boxing and stuff right
1: Yeah like I I think yeah. he I don't think he worked with Chuck Liddell for long but I think he did work with Chuck Liddell for a little while like anyway yeah he's he at before he passed away worked with a lot of fighters and and on top of that I will say I never met him uh or at least not that I remember and if I did it was totally in passing But I, from every account I've ever read, heard, seen, he was like the nicest guy on the face of the planet.
2: He really was. He really, really was. He uh, used to make frequent trips to the Hall of Fame. He was one of the guys that would just kind of go every year. Um, He was there the first year I went. He was one of the first guys I met. And would take time out to talk to you, talk about his career, anything. Really, really genuine, really, built, you know, uh, gracious with his time and just a really genuinely nice guy. And I've said this before on the show, um, so I'm not going to like rehash the whole thing. But it was really cool to see when they when they did the um, 30th anniversary of the um, '76 team. So this was 2006 at the Hall of Fame, and they had basically everybody there that was that could be there, you know, not like was able to be there. They were there, and so everybody made a speech, but they let Davis because he was the captain of the team speak last. And that was awesome. You know what I mean? Like Leonard was the next to last to speak. And you would think because Leonard was the big star. Everyone's like, oh, he'll be the last. Nah, Leonard spoke a little bit, did his thing. And then he kind of like went like that to Davis and Davis got up and summed it up about how being a team captain and what it meant being back then and all that stuff. And you can see, man, how proud he was. It was the coolest thing. Like he just had this look of just accomplishment, and proudness, like that was his team he was the captain. They went out there and they just you know. Just
1: to reiterate, you know, like not trying to say at all that he didn't accomplish anything or that he wasn't yeah. un, was unworthy. And we or,
2: can even accomplish a smidgen of what he did. That's like wild. But you have to say, bro, from what when he turned pro and what people were expecting, yeah, he fits the bill. And Absolutely.
1: and that's and that's the point is just the disparity between how great he was as an amateur. It's not that he was total crap as a pro. It's just that as an amateur, so huge that it's, yeah. it's impossible to live up to, you know, that level. Totally, totally.
2: So, and it's sad, you know, it's tragic what happened to him too for a guy that like never smoked or drank or did anything and ends up dying of lung cancer. Life's not fair, but, um, you know, rest in peace to Howard Davis. Indeed, yeah. Good fighter. I mean, excuse me, great fighter and even a better person if you had the chance to meet him. So, but good call on that. Good call on that. Um, the next one I wanted to bring up, though, is another one uh from the 90s man we've talked about him before actually i put him on on our list yesterday when we talked to when i broached the subject to twitter about who they wanted to bring up on the show and that's eddie hobson all right there you go well speaking of the hold on one second man. i gotta grab something here because this is relevant to the story <laughs> all right so yes yeah, it's, it's the late 80s early 90s um and there's a whole new crop of fighters out there. I mean, the '88 team has been turning pro and whooping a lot of ass and doing good. But there's still some leftover guys that didn't make that team, but had the potential. Some people were talking were even supposed to be better than some of the guys that were on the team. One of those guys was Fast Eddie Hobson. Eddie Hobson was still in high school, I believe, when he almost made the Olympic team in 88. From St. Louis, Missouri, an incredible amateur man. The fastest hands you could have possibly imagined, just like a brilliant, brilliant fighter. And when he turned pro, he turned pro under, you know, the main defense monk, uh, with Duva and the rest of them. And you know, he he was he he was just looked upon again as a future star, man. If you watched him in his early fights, dude, brilliant man, fast hands, flurs, he would land. Like he just he just looked like a, a future superstar, too. And he was cool, like he, he personified that late era because he was a high schooler, he was still a teenager. Um, He had the Gumby haircut back then, which was very popular in the New Jack Swing, late 80s, early 90s era. And he was a fan of like the DC comics, like Batman, Superman, Joker thing, right? So what I had to grab, which makes this relevant, is means that um, when he'd be ringed, like during in his corner, instead of the guys wearing like, you know, the usual corner men's jackets, he would have them all decked out in um, Batman and Joker t-shirts. So. There's a photo somewhere and long um, longtime long friend of the show, Reggie Dunlop, KillPad on Twitter, would probably know one of the magazines I'm talking about, but there's a photo of Lou Duva wearing one of these t-shirts right inside. You know, imagine Lou Duva in a Joker t-shirt. And Pat, you know, I collect uh, more than just boxing vintage stuff, right? Like I actually collect just regular vintage shirts. So this is one of the shirts that Lou Duva was featured in. if' rings in one of his magazines, all right? Imagine Lou Duva wearing this. <laughs> Just think that. Just think of that visual, all right. So
1: that's awesome.
2: Yeah, a 1989 Joker t-shirt. Imagine Lou Duver rocking out in that. That's that's what he was wearing back then, you know, clapping along, all tucked in the whole nine yards with his with his latex gloves on. But this was this was the Eddie Hobson thing. So um, and he would always do a backflip too after his victories, which was so he he put on a good show and he became popular. Um, by the mid 90s you know, after a series of wins, he didn't fight any, like, competition that was going to be, like, mind-blowing guys either. He's fighting a lot of guys that would just kind of run in the mill fighters. As I bring up his record over here really quick, um, you know, he was he was being groomed. It was basically being groomed via, for, uh, for a world title. And the guys he's beating, it's like, you know, they're not losing records so, I mean, there's a few of the like, a lot of his early fights are guys against nondescript guys. He's still young, and they just want to build him up, but by the time you know around 92 93 he starts fighting at this point you know guys with they're respectable guys but they're not you know clearly on the back end for example jesus pole jesus pole was a dude who was very popular on the um west coast um in the late in the mid 80s to the early 90s fought a lot of top guys fought for a world title was undefeated for a minute featured a lot in the great Western forum and other venues of that nature but by the time 1993 comes around he's clearly past it so that's the easy name for hobson to have as a record that a lot of guys kind of built on their record at that point and you know uh troy dorsey is another one too I, I love dorsey dorsey's one of my favorites but clearly a guy that you know there was a limit to him man he was short he was stubby and cut easily and he wasn't a punch he wasn't going to try to block with his face so that was easy for a guy like Hop. Uh, huh, uh, yeah, hop,
1: absorb hop, nineteen hop. to land one. You know,
2: Well, he he was another yeller too, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. And karate and Karate, fucking, that's what happens. Dude, Dorsey was awesome though, man. Like, it's one of my favorites.
2: The dude, that had an absolute shit record, but it didn't matter because he was a kickboxer first. He didn't really. I don't think he cared what his record was. Um, he would fight anybody, anytime, any place. When he won his world title briefly uh he scored a vicious knockout breaking the guy's jaw alfred rang out for it so I don't know. i'm a dorsey guy but those are two good wins man the jesus pole fight's a good win and the dorsey fight is clearly a good win at that point because dorsey in 94 is still a guy that had a lot of years ahead of him and some big fights ahead of him so by the time he fights for the world championship and um against a random guy named moises pedroza in 1995 this is just like an easy coronation for him this is kind of like Comparable to when Adrian Brona won his first world title, when Judah was matched up with Jan Bergman to win his first world title, and so on and so forth. When you get a vacant shot and you have a guy that's clearly a major favorite and a dude that's just kind of like unknown, who's brought in as an opponent, they may have a they may have a gaudy record or whatever, but you know these guys are just brought in to get their asses whooped. This is what you're gonna get over here. And this is basically what happened. Hop uh Hopsin shined in the fight, whooped on Pajosa, fights on YouTube. Pedrozo has no idea what's going on. He's very probably his record is just built on absolute tomato cans. And he has no business being in a world title fight. So Hopkins Hopkins, I keep on saying that. Hobson did what he pleased and ended up scoring an easy stoppage. So at this point, it looks like the sky's the limit for him, man. You know, he's undefeated. He's a world champion now. Um, he has great backing. He's been televised and his future defenses are going to be televised. He's being featured a lot in the Ring Magazine, KO Magazine, other magazines. And he's looked upon as maybe one of the future guys of the 90s. But his next fight, he probably fights the biggest test of his career. A guy, you know, at this point, Hobson really hasn't been tested. Yes, he beat Dorsey. Yes, he's a world champion, but no one has really been able to, like, test his mettle. His next fight was against a guy named Tracy Harris Patterson, the adopted son of Floyd Patterson, a former world champion. A guy at this point that had 50, 55 pro fights. An overall badass who wasn't going to be intimidated by a gaudy record of fast hands.
1: Yeah, a very good fighter who had been there, done that for the most part. And, you know, I mean, he he was not in the, he was definitely in the twilight of his career for sure. But, you know, are we seeing a fucking theme here with all of these (laughs) fighters? Like pretty much every fighter we've mentioned, like, you know, he's cruising on the motherfucking fast track and then runs into the veteran like, let this be a fucking lesson. You know what I mean? But, um, yeah, like just rewinding just ever so slightly. And we've talked about this on other shows, uh, the 1976 team, we're, we're going to mention the Olympics and amateur shit a lot, uh, on the show, obviously, but the 1976 Olympics was so huge for American amateur boxing, you know, the bicentennial, blah, 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 There's all sorts of shit. And they were just, and it was just so pushed through the media And so you have to imagine that there are a lot of younger kids who are inspired to then take up boxing around this time. You know, anytime you have this massive figure or movement or event, that you know is promoting boxing that does inspire younger kids to take up boxing. And so uh Hobson was from St. Louis, which is exactly where the Sphinx brothers were from, and they had come about 10 years before him. So I mean, when you think about this, the timing really matches up and makes sense. And then on top of that, you add the extra layer into it where like now a lot of it has fallen by the wayside, and on top of that, it sounds like what in 2028, they're not gonna have boxing at the Olympics anymore, which fucking sucks. I'm I'm almost positive that they announced that the other day or that they were like basically like it's on the chopping block but I mean so that's awful because awesome. especially since we're talking about the fucking <laughs> influence of the Olympics right at this point but like uh in the golden gloves and stuff like that dude it's less of a factor these days but Chicago Even Iowa, fucking Des Moines, Chicago, Des Moines, uh, you know, a number of these kind of like a Midwestern place, St. Louis, Oklahoma, a a number of these places, either in the Midwest or whatever on the fucking plains that now are like non factors in boxing actually had active amateur boxing tournaments where like if you won them, it didn't necessarily mean like, you know, you were a fucking great fighter but it, it kind of meant you were somebody and you were probably going to have something expected of you and so it makes a lot of sense you know like and a lot of people might not have heard of Eddie Hobson but like at the time a lot was expected absolutely and like I said his fight with Moises Pedroza was on tele-
2: was on television you know once that got televised and he became a world champion um, he was featured again a lot of when people are talking about the future um, of the ring like future superstars of the of the 90s for the mid to late 90s he was going to be one of those guys man this guy was supposed to be the limit so when he fought tracy patterson patterson was one of those guys like you said man a long time veteran it wasn't going to be awed by anybody or anything because he had seen it all i mean think about if you look at his record you would see a who's who of who he fought you know i mean he had already gone through it he fought daniel zaragoza twice he fought terry jacobs he fought um actor Osaro sanchez this one, that one, like Stevie Cruz, you know, like there was a lot of really good fighters on his record that he fought, and so if uh, Hobson was able to beat him and beat him convincingly, then a lot, you know, he would de- like even the the strongest skeptics would have to like nod their head and be like, all right, man, this guy's legit. And here's the reason why he was more of a favorite too. Patterson was moving up two divisions to fight Hobson, uh, you know. Patterson was a natural banner, but he was a small guy. He wasn't cute. Um, he was a natural, he was like a natural featherweight, excuse me. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't, he wasn't like weight to featherweight. He wasn't a big guy. He was kind of tall. He was stocky. He was built well, but he wasn't big, especially for the junior lightweight division. He wasn't, you know, smaller. So when, you know, you watch the fight, man, Hobson again, just using his fast hands, moving around, oh, oh, it's flurrying, 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 but not really doing much. He's just kind of looking more just for flash, but he's not really sitting on his punches. He's dancing around his kind of like you know flicking his jab and everything but patterson again not odd by all this is timing him well he's already landing some right hands he's timing him without well a shot he's not going off too crazy or really overextending himself but he's you know gauging his distance timing everything and finding success with it too because he's punching through hobson's flurries and when round two starts you hear i think it was either alex walu walu or um who, who did who was it dan deardoff was was his uh announcer with him
1: yeah, yeah, it was Deirdorf and Wallow, I think. Well, yeah. at least for a while, yeah.
2: They made a really good announce team, too, because whenever some shit happened, the those I left that team, guys. yeah. Yeah, when they would start yelling. So I think it was Deirdorf that was like, you know, Duva told him, hey, you know, Eddie, you lost that first round. And as, as he says that, he comes over, Patterson throws a right hand, pop, a beautiful run right on the button, hops and just goes dropping in the heap. Wow. You know, and then you hear Deerdorf and uh, Walu at the same time, ah! and <laughs> and um as that happens, it, you know Patterson at that point that's when he becomes you know that's when he lets loose and he smells blood and Hobson and guy he had no legs under him at that point you know what yeah I mean? it
1: totally took him
2: Everywhere. out and um Mills Lane was the referee in that fight Hobson got dropped four times in that round because the three knockdown rule wasn't in effect, which is kind of rare for fights back then, so well, the four, well, when, well, after he got dropped the fourth time, man, it was, there was no need to let that go on, it was a bloodletting, you know what I mean, what are you gonna do, Hobson had no chance to come back and win that fight, so it gets stopped and that was a huge upset it wasn't an upset of the year type fight, but it was a big upset in the fact that Patterson was looked, like you said, was looked upon a little bit past it, he was moving up two divisions and Hobson was looked upon as the future, and at that point no one knew that he didn't have a glass jaw. like no one that really like clicked him like that and just completely flattened him so a guy like patterson just piecing him up and stopping him was kind of like whoa you know and um as a side note i actually remember i was bummed because i was supposed to watch that fight live this was in my infancy of watching boxing but i remember it being publicized i read about hobson in a magazine uh, already from beating perjosa so i knew who he was um I knew who floyd patterson was so if i heard that floyd patterson's kid was gonna fight for a title i was curious and i think we had to go run errands and my parents made me go with them and i was pissed <laughs> so i had to wait until boxing illustrated came out to find out who won that fight and that's when i was like oh wow you know and then think about it patterson went on to have the two fights with a gatti um the first fight was unbelievable the second fight whatever but Still, he had, you know, he was able to get some paydays near the end of his career before he rode off to the sunset. Hobson, his career never really came on track again after that. You know, soon afterwards, after the fight with Patterson where he gets stopped, he fights a guy named uh, Tito Tovar. Tito Tovar was um was a not definitely not a contender. Excuse me, was a journeyman from that era that fought a lot of names, lost to all of them, but usually could go around with guys and most of the time got stopped. The fact that he went the distance with Hobson, I believe he went the distance with Hobson. Um, he did, yeah. He did, yeah, kind of, you know, shows things right there. just kind of like, eh, you know what I mean? Because Tovar was used as Jeff Bennett's first comeback opponent and a bunch of other things. His next fight is against a guy named Santos Lopez. Santos Lopez, another guy with a really spotty record, but a tough, she's con- uh, that contender word, <laughs> a tough guy who could test you, and could hit hard enough. You know, what I mean, he was he was a tough, but a guy at the same time again that Hobson should have just breezed through easily. But this was a fight I've always wanted to see because I'm pretty sure that it was at least filmed. I don't know if it, it definitely wasn't televised, but I'm sure it was filmed. And this was the same night that Calvin Grove got knocked out by Angel Man Freddie. And the reason why I remember this is because it was featured in one of those magazines talking about how both guys basically cooked from this. But Hobson was winning the fight, but looking more or less uninspired. But each round Lopez was getting closer, closer, teeing off on him. And Hobson just started looking really tired at one point. And then at the very last round, because you know Lopez just started teeing off on him. And they said Hobson had just had nothing left. He just laid there and just started getting hit around and Lopez scored a big win. You know, that was a huge upset. And Lopez ended up getting a couple of televi- more televised fights off of that. I think on Tuesday night fights or so. But regardless that was the end of it. You know, Hobson's career more or less was over.
1: Yeah. He, he got three more wins, but not against really anybody, uh, you know, any, anybody who would have actually put him in a position to like fight for a world title or anything like that. And by that time, you know, he's probably wasn't really getting paid much at the grand casino and Biloxi or the probably satellite grand casino in Tunica. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, or Bay St. Louis, so yeah, you know, he's probably you know what, not.
2: Man, me, you, Gray, and Corey need to go to one of those casino shows in Mississippi or one of those Midwest places out there.
1: And I ain't talking them down. I'm just saying from a fighter's perspective. We need to go
2: because I'm just from reading all about them and seeing those places. I just need to see the crowds that show up to those type of events. Yeah
1: man it smells like nascar and mountain dew i'm sure (laughs) but regardless yeah dude you know it's uh but these venues from a fighter's perspective especially when you're a former world champion that's not really where you want to be fighting you know so it's it was clearly a fall um and i mean the fact that he was able to earn a world title says a lot obviously that's he's already in a a upper percentage of fighters as is even just earning world title period But regardless, you know, uh, given, given everything, given, uh, the expectation. Yeah, for sure. Fell short. Yeah. Clearly. Um, no, go ahead.
2: I didn't realize this too. When we were doing research, he actually passed away a couple of months ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah, dude. I mean, I, I didn't know that either until you said something and I was just like, oh damn.
2: Jesus. But yeah. When I was Googling him really quick, the first thing comes up and says Eddie Hopkins an obituary. And I was like, huh? And then no. I click. And then when I looked in it, I was like, whoa, 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 really? But yeah, man, it was tragic. He had some kind of ailment going
1: on with him. But like, yeah, there have been a number of fighters from even yeah. from around that time recently in the last few years who passed away. It was which, really young, really young, you
2: know?
1: Yeah. Very young. So just awful shit, unfortunately. Um, let's see got another one here actually here I'll, I'll skip right to that one i've brought this fighter up here but i found a really good story that i wanted that i wanted to recount so i won't spend a whole lot of time so we at least get one more in before we get out of here but nonetheless i've brought this fighter up and it's a good opportunity to take it uh, way far back into the 1800s because i like to do that every so often just because you know we're concentrating in like the recent like 1990s and shit. But um I brought him up before a guy named Herbert Mowry Slade,
2: yes, you know man, I was what I told you earlier this week I was doing a whole like deep dive on John L. Sullivan for a random day at work, and they talked all about this fight with uh with herb Slade, so yeah. <laughs>
1: You know, it's just like, basically I'll try to be brief because, you know, we could go into a lot of the history of this, but we talked about on the greatest uh, Australian fighters of all time. I talked about Jem Mace. I talked about his importance as far as Jem Mace was an 1860s and 70s bare knuckle champion in England. And he basically embarked around the world, literally He went through the South Pacific and he went through New Zealand, Australia, especially. And he used to do these exhibitions where either it was wrestling, uh, boxing, a mixture of the two, sometimes even just training. And so it was basically spreading the good word of boxing. Instead of being a fucking Christian missionary, which I don't know, maybe he was too. Instead of proselytizing this bullshit to people, he was spreading boxing. And uh, he would often have people who would come along with him and train with him and show like he would do exhibitions and sparring exhibitions, shit like that. And so while he was in New Zealand, I think Auckland, he picked up, he he came across this dude, Herbert Slade, that he called the Maori. And that's how he kind of marketed him. uh, And that he had taught him how to wrestle and that he was big and strong and kind of, you know, looked imposing and whatnot. Um, And so it, as it turned out, this dude was just not he was kind of shitty he was he wasn't very good <laughs> I mean I'm from pretty much all accounts, really, and I found a really funny story that was cracking me up because i I had brought him up previously uh because he was kind of like an understudy of jem mace, and basically if you go if you go to his box rec record, like there's not much on there, but I've told people before go to cyber boxing zone they have a lot of, they'll list exhibitions and sometimes even wrestling matches. Um, whereas box rec, nothing against box rec. I mean, you can only fucking list so much stuff on there. So I get it, but uh, there's a lot of really good information on Cyberboxing zone, especially about this dude, long story short. Um, so in, let me go back to where I, where I had it here in 1883. I'm blind as shit. So here we go. (laughs) So there's a dude named Lord Charles uh, Beresford. And this was as Jem Mace had, I guess, made his way back to England. He had been challenged by this dude named Lord Charles Beresford. And granted, Mace Mace was like old by this time. He was not a young dude. And he was also uh, known, I think, to be a bit of a drinker. And so this dude challenged him to some sort of bare knuckle sparring match. And Mace said, sure, let's go. And the guy just embarrassed him. Like Mace was just like, looked like a total fucking piece of crap. And, but I mean, the guy I think was much younger in good shape. And I think also did a lot of athleticism, like a lot of these people did in this time. And so Maori Slade, Herbert Slade was with Mace and I guess witnessed this, Uh this exhibition and got super pissed off because the guy whooped up, you know, he, you whooped up my master. Yeah. And so the guy was just like, well, I'll fucking fight you too. What's up. <laughs> and so, and this was their very first trip to England. And the whole thing was that Jem Mace was showing this guy off. He was mm-hmm. just like, look at this Maori, look at this specimen. look at this guy I have here. He's this fucking giant. He's going to beat everybody up. And then sure enough, so this foofy fucking aristocrat guy beats the shit out of Jem Mace and then challenges the Maori. And the Maori's like, whoa. Nah. Yeah. I'm good actually. <laughs> and so the newspaper was like, this guy's a fucking fraud right away they were just like this is his first trip to england and he straight up was just like i won't fight you and so they were like even razzing him through the fucking press talking about he won't fight anybody like, you know, like turning down street fights and so anyway it's it, that's just a kind of like uh, an anecdote like who gives a shit if he turns uh turns down a street fight but if you fast forward and actually go to his record you know like there's almost nothing of note every single fighter that he actually stepped in the ring with and tried to, you know, do something for real with, he got beaten down, he got embarrassed and apparently was super slow and just unskilled. But there was a lot of, and considering he didn't really win anything of note ever, we're still talking about him here 150 years later. That's pretty amazing. You know, pretty That's amazing. Pretty
2: awesome. He fi- he fights John L. Sullivan for whatever world title we want to call that back then. And that fight's held at Madison square garden. Correct. Yeah. and well, this version of madison square garden was basically yeah, the like very ram- first one it was it's like a ram barn yeah made out stuff. of
1: fucking wood and fucking yeah, broken uh, dreams
0: yeah
2: seriously it just uh, looks like a stupid barn probably yeah so that's where that was held and they said that not only did sullivan whoop him so badly like it was embarrassing like that they said that not only knocked him out he knocked him over the ropes like, they said it was, like, some, like, over-the-top type shit, like you would see in wrestling when, you know, like, Big Show. And, and
1: these so are, hard. like, literal ropes. Like, these yeah. are ropes made out of, like, a cow's foot or something. You know? <laughs>
2: and, like, he got hit so hard, they said he went up and over the ropes. And it made me think, man, maybe you would agree with me, like, the way they talk about Sullivan and how he would score these knockouts, Um, you can almost compare it to something like Tank Abbott when Tank Abbott was in the UFC, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah like yeah to a degree maybe you know what i mean especially dude if you actually look at photos because there are some photos of him. Yeah. the fool was like not in shape like or like in his younger younger days he looked pretty good like very no, young like his
2: very early days like before he became champion when he was still yeah, like it was like as soon as boy. he
1: became champion that fool started looking like me that fool started yeah. looking like a cabbage patch doll or just, something man
2: just straight up guzzling drinks everywhere all this stupid shit man i yeah whatever and then to the find out that after his after his career ended with a uh, Fitz no, with um with Corbett that he was trying to contemplate trying to come back for a number of years and in 1905 came this close again to coming back,
1: but yeah, would have been murder, absolute murder. I guess <laughs> the sport had just moved on from him, dude.
2: But yeah, Slade. This, his notoriety was that he became one of Sullivan's travel and spar partners after that, I think. Because after Sullivan realized, you know, Sullivan yeah. will up on a few of his opponents. He figured they were nice enough guys because for one reason or another, he liked them, I guess. And he knew that, you know, he was superior to them. That he could probably, you know, if they ever wanted to get out of line, he could clearly just knock them back in line. So he just took them on the road with him, you know, his road show.
1: Yep. And that's how, that's how around this time a lot of fighters, even going up into probably the 19 teens, uh, made money. They would yeah. go, you know, between fights and go on the road and do exhibitions and training shows and stuff like that, pay 50 cents to watch, et cetera, you know. So, yeah, just, I mean, just amazing the fact that he didn't really accomplish anything. Here we are talking about.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. That whole era is really fascinating to me, but like, totally. That the thing when we were reading that stuff about the reading about um, about Sullivan and reading about the challengers that people were trying to come up with back then is almost laughable because like Richard K. Fox who hated Sullivan hated him um, it was the... Like was stop the, at
1: nothing to like fucking get him yeah. a loss
2: yeah yeah and he was the head of the uh, Police Gazette which is like you know the version of I guess Ring Magazine you would call it today or something but um he... Like he At one point, he wanted Tom Allen, whose last fight was in the 1860s to challenge Sullivan. And Sullivan was like, no, that guy's way too old. I'll kill him. And then they even mentioned Jeb Mace at one point. They're like, oh, we'll bring Mace out of retirement to fight Sullivan. And Sullivan, again, was like, no, I'm not going to fight a person like that. But then it's kind of ironic in 1905 that Sullivan is out there old, fat, and graying and demanding that you say, hey, I want to fight Jeffries. I want to fight Corbett in a rematch. I want Fitzsimmons. I want X, Y, and Z. And then, yeah.
1: And I'm pretty sure that the the whole story too was that one time Richard Fox was having dinner at the same restaurant or bar that John L. Sullivan was having having it at and was like, tried to go up and say hi. And L. Sullivan was like, get the fuck out of here, dude. I'm eating or something like that. And ever since then, Richard K. Fox was like, I'm holding a grudge and trying to get this guy knocked out. (laughs) (laughs) Which is is hilarious.
2: Uh, my last one for you I guess to bring up then is uh, another one that we we put on the list and kind of a I would I guess call it a deep cut because unless you were a fan of that era you might forget about him you know you probably didn't hear of him or you might have forgot about him but at one point before Julio Cesar Chavez came on the scene he was looked upon as the future of Mexican boxing that's Rudolfo Gato Gonzalez
1: that's true that's actually a pretty good one yeah he actually got a fair bit of um, like press and media attention there for a little bit. I mean, Oh yeah. A lot of people, if you, I, you and I weren't around obviously bef- oh. before Julio Cesar Chavez era. So we couldn't say firsthand, but I mean, we could, we can say firsthand what it felt like growing up in that era where he was super popular and especially like, you know, I grew up in San Diego And I mean, I had a shitload of Mexican friends, and Julio Cesar Chavez was super popular among my friends and everything. And so, but even before that era, so my point being that it's tough to remember, you know, what it was like before that. So it was like, who were they holding up on a pedestal and shit? And so there were a lot of times these kind of fighters would come around, and that's who they would.
2: Exactly, and Gonzalez was dude. He was a wrecking ball when he came on the scene. I mean, I boxing fans again they love punchers all right mexican fans love punchers too especially look at the popularity that a guy like ruben has had zarate zamora the list goes on and on if you can just like you know break jaws and hurt equilibriums and put guys into another planet people are going to love you and in the late 70s into the early 80s gonzalez was doing absolutely that to anybody and everybody that he was fighting all right you know like Dudes who you can imagine, for instance, um, I'll throw you a name right now, Curtis Rab- Razor Ramsey. Razor Ramsey is a guy that was actually a middleweight. You know, I went to middleweight at one point and fought ended, ended up fighting uh, Frank Fletcher and other guys at that, John Mugabe. And he got blasted by Gato Gonzalez as a lightweight in 1979. Um, Herman Montz, who was, a, who was another fight. I mean, that was a technical draw, but another guy that was from that era, another tough guy. Uh, Norman Goins, who we just mentioned earlier, I think about uh, with um, Howard Davis, he got knocked out in one round. Um, Villamar Fernandez, we just mentioned him too, a longtime contender that would have been champion in another era. He got absolutely blasted in two rounds. And when he got knocked out in two rounds by Gonzalez, that's when the world was just like, yo, holy crap, who is this kid? You know what I mean? Like, do we have another Duran on our hands? Do we have this? Do we have that? Because like, Nobody knocks out Villamar Fernandez in two rounds. Duran didn't even do that. Norman Goings wasn't a world beater, but no one was knocking him out in a, in a round like that either. Like, these were tough guys. And Gonzalez was just dusting them like it was nobody's business. So by the time he fights Andy Gannigan, another absolute monster, monster puncher of the era. Um, they had a war. They had absolute straight-up war. Gannigan drops him, which is no shame, because Gannigan almost dropped everybody that he fought.
1: The Hawaiian uh, Punch, they called that fool. Yeah, Fuck
2: <laughs> that, dude. Imagine going in the ring in here. And it probably comes out to Hawaii 5-0 or something, like some kind of theme song. I and mean, you know you got to fight that
1: dude.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the left hand that just blasts you, the next thing you know, you wake up and get dressed, and you're like, oh, what happened? Are we fighting you? Bro, <laughs> we're going to the hospital. Huh? Why? Ganning okay? Yeah, he's fine. You're not. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> but
2: so that he, he beats gannigan and that's a big win because like gannigan at that point is the top contender and that was a wild shootout um gonzalez gets dropped but he also dropped gannigan three times himself to to score a convincing win so by at, by 1981 now it's not a if but a win if he's going to become a world champion um the lightweight division is kind of like in you know in an influx You're like it's it, it's kind of open now at this point. Duran had moved up a long time ago. Alexis Arguello um, was getting ready to, to move up eventually. The WBA championship was kind of, was, you know, vacant. And at this point, if with it being vacant, it was it was basically going to be the coronation of Gonzalez because the guy he was going to fight for the belt was a guy by the name of Claude Noel. Claude Noel had been a long, had been a long time um, contender, a long time fighter, a little bit older, probably a little bit past it at this point. But and any and he had a he was basically reached at a limit to A lot of these guys that we mentioned, you know, they reached their limit. Like he's when he fought Alexis Arguello, he got knocked out. When he fought other guys, he he ended up losing. So I mean he was a good fighter, but he wasn't a person that was supposed to cause any trouble for um Gato Gonzalez. And surprisingly, when they ended up fighting, Noel outboxed him, out outboxed him, he outpunched him, out outworked him, out everything them, and won a convincing decision in a fight that Gonzalez was not supposed to lose. And once that happened, I his career never really, you know, he he became really on track again. And if you want to talk about a bust, I don't like to use that word either. He's basically the definition of it because all the accolades and everything that they built from at that point, he never even came close to it after that.
1: Yeah, dude. I'm I'm not positive. I wanna say I know that he, he was from the FA that Gato Gonzalez was from uh Mexico City, mm-hmm. but I'm almost certain that he's also from this neighborhood in mexico city called Tepito, which is actually like a it's a really famous boxing neighborhood because there's like a shitload of of like either world champions or contenders who have come from that neighborhood um and in any case uh yeah dude he was really he that was part of his story too was the fact that he would come from mexico city and i mean there's an entire different dynamic of between mexican boxing When it comes to like, uh, you know, people who aren't from Mexico and especially Americans are probably fairly ignorant of like the Mexican states and regions and whatnot, because they think of Mexico and they're like, yeah, the desert. You know, when reality, Mexico is a fucking massive country and there's all sorts of environments from jungle and rainforest to to desert, arid desert and fucking border towns, etc., but, and when it comes to Mexican boxing, like there's a lot of these kind of partitions off too. Like, uh, you know, in the Yucatan, there's like, uh, um, you know, there it's Miguel Canto was the first Yucate- Yucatec. Uh, world champion and that was a big deal because that's the yucatan area in mexico's just as an example not generally considered a huge area for boxing and so there was a little bit of a surge blah 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 so in any case gato gonzalez comes from a place where it's far more popular in mexico and mexico city and it's you know there are a lot of gyms it's far more difficult to make your mark coming out of mexico city when you're when you're fighting so, in any case, Gato Gonzalez did that by being a puncher. Like you said, dude was wrecking fools. And that's exactly how he stood out. Um, but then, you know, Claude Noel, that's the kind of fighter he just was, like, not supposed to lose to, at least on the cards, you know, at least on paper. He was supposed to get through this, and he was supposed to continue wrecking shit. But it was almost like after after that that seal is broken, can't be unbroken, you know?
2: totally you know and his career never really got on track again sure he had series of wins but they weren't against world beater guys and every time he stepped up against like somebody that was like a you know really legit and a good fighter he ended up losing um for instance vicente mahares is a name that if you're a hardcore fan you might recognize him but if you're not a hardcore fan you're not going to know any idea who he was He was another Mexican uh, contender from the mid-70s up into the early 80s, Who was a really, really tough guy, beat Randy Shields a couple of times, lost to Andy Gannigan, but beat a lot of of tough contenders. And he ended up beating Gato Gonzalez twice, And which is another one. That's probably an upset in itself because they came from slightly different eras. Bajares is a little bit before him, and Gonzalez was on the rise, so conceivably Gonzalez shouldn't have lost to a guy like that. But that's what ends up happening and you know there's still some high there's still some high wins there like renee um was a good win that was a former Mm -hmm. uh future champion and stuff but yeah just you know like we talked about with howard davis when his first world title fight was in 1980 and then he had to wait all the way until 1984 to get another title shot same thing with gonzalez his first his first world title fight was in 1981 and yeah, he had a few losses in between, so maybe that kind of derailed it. But his second world title fight ended up being in 1987. And when you think about that whole gap of time, that's pretty significant because a lot of other guys would get title shots a lot quicker, you know, especially with his name, with name value like that, as opposed to others. So yep. that's you know, it's significant. And it mm-hmm. was another fight that he would lose.
1: Both he and the guy that you brought up that he defeated pretty narrowly, Rene Arredondo, both of them. Uh, became really known around LA fighting at the Olympic and the forum and the LA sports arena around this time, which was kicking, you know, in the early 1980s, it had kind of, uh, you know, kicked back up as far as getting busy again and having a bunch of stars and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, yeah, he had to wait his turn, despite the fact that he had a fairly busy schedule, you know, he couldn't quite get up over that hump. And then when he finally did fights the Italian dude, Patrizio Oliva, in italy and oliva is one of those guys that's like from around this time that's kind of forgotten nobody ever really talks about him so um, one
2: of those mid-80s champions
1: yeah a lot of, and i mean i i hate to lump dude apparently our show does really well in italy but i hate <laughs> to lump the italian fighters together but many of them had a very similar style and similar reigns too yeah. you know Olivia's oliva is one of those dudes
2: And at this point, man, Gonzalez, he's, it's, it's 1987. The reign of terror that he was producing in the late seventies and early eighties is clearly over. So a guy like Oliva, who was already close to 50, and know, at this point, mostly built up in Europe, but still a significant, was going to be able to comprehensively outbox him and win comfortably, which he did, you know, and that was the same thing. Man Gonzalez, again, he would go up with a few string of wins at the same time, but then at the again, he would lose whenever he stepped up. Ronnie Shields, who is best known as a longtime trainer with Perno Whitaker and a host of other uh, champions, probably a Hall of Fame trainer when you think about it. But um, a lot of people might not realize this. I'm sure if you listen to the show, you do, that he was a tough, he was a top contender in the 70s, uh, excuse me, in the 80s. Really, really tough contender. Fought for the world title a couple of times, fought a who's who of everybody in the junior welterweight division. So by the time in 1987, when he fights um, when he fights Gato Gonzalez, same thing. Gonzalez has already reached that litmus, and he loses to Ronnie Shields. But still, he ends up, you know, somehow securing one more title fight. Unfortunately, that title fight is against Black Mamba, Roger Mayweather, your friend and mine, everybody's favorite back in the day, you know. And in the late eighties, Roger Mayweather had already been through it, his, and he had, already, he had already been through his career at this point. Yeah, he's either
1: going to blast or get blasted.
2: Yes. There's already been a long, you know, there's already been a line, you know, um, centered around Mayweather in his career at this point. You know what I mean? He's had some highs, he's had some lows, but by 1988, he's on a high. He's been going through it, and he's an attraction in the L.A. area because now he's on the Mexican assassin kick. Yeah. Beat up all these fighters <laughs> with the hope to get a rematch with Chavez because that was the young goal, which he eventually received. But at this point... Gonzalez was, you know, basically brought in as a sacrificial lamb for this black, you know, for the Mexican assassin gimmick. And yeah, he just got pummeled the whole fight. I've never seen it, but if you go on Botrick, look at it, the scores were eye-popping and wide. And Gonzalez was a bad style matchup anyways. That was just like Mayweather's too long, too tall, too lanky. And the style was just not going to work, especially by 1988 when Gonzalez is washed. So.
1: Yeah, it's... At this point, I think that whatever mojo he had was gone. You know, he he had both timing wise, and I guess just he was spent. And so at that point, the only win he had was that massive win in Mexico City against Warren Williams. Yes, <laughs> that was it for the end of his career. <laughs> you know, to add to from that point on, he was basically just kind of used as an opponent.
2: He even had one fight in two thousand four. It's always random when these guys come back for a one off, and I just like. You know, fifteen or so years later,
1: <laughs> against the eight fourteen and four dude, and then loses. Yeah. You know, and it's like, okay, buddy, you should have stayed retired.
2: Always, man. Danny Lopez came back. Remember, Ruben Olivares came back in '88. You just kind of like, what do? Why? Why? What are you doing? Oh,
1: These poor bastards. They saw George Foreman do it,
2: and then all all that shit happens, and then you know, and then um, they they give a guy with like a two and eighteen record the chance to tell all their kids and family that I whooped up on a world champion one time yeah you see Seriously. that one when i had you say what i, I was <laughs> yep
1: you get uriah grant a win over thomas hearns yeah yeah exactly
2: two bastards but i mean was, it's you know it was fun man but there was other names i wish we only get so much time but those other it, names we might
1: we fun. might have to wind up doing a part two because like there's it's a long list dude
2: <laughs> it really is man from again we can go back to the 20s i was gonna actually bring up today bombardier billy Wells.
1: That's a, um, yeah. That's a good one. He was the uh, pretty sure he was British uh, heavyweight yeah. champion for a bit, wasn't and he, he? And he
2: was brought over to the U.S. with a yeah. lot of accolades and promise as a as the White Hope to the throne. Jack Johnson, before Gunboat Smith of all people, blasted him. Um it was him. There's Jorge Luis Gonzalez. There's Frankie Gomez, who a lot of people mentioned. That's, um, yeah.
1: Sounds like we're gonna have to do a part two. Sean yeah, Estrada.
2: Yeah, Sean Estrada, absolutely.
1: Charlie White, lining Brown. Yeah. So. All right, we'll we'll probably do a part two then, but no, uh, it, it's not the it's not the easiest because it's kind of like a fine line to walk when we're talking about these fighters because we want to remember them and obviously they're memorable, but we're also kind of remembering them for something that's not the most positive thing. But nonetheless, you know, hopefully we're going through it in a respectful way, in a way that we're showing yeah, we're not like do, trying to, I'm
2: not here to bash yeah, anybody. Yeah, we're know? not
1: lampooning or anything. You know, we're just remembering.
2: That's unless all. you're a jerk and deserve it
1: in which case yes well yeah, we could have brought up uh you know uh tony fucking lopez and whatnot but oh yeah <laughs> anyway maybe that'll be part two and that'll be our like you know we just rail on him but in any case <laughs> yeah no i appreciate it dude because i know sure. uh you do your research i do mine come together and we we'll make it happen yes sir Hey, everybody, thanks so much for listening in. We really do appreciate you as well. If you listen in via the podcast apps, please give us a uh, subscribe on there. Leave us a comment and all those things. Very much appreciated, rate us. Also, if you watched on YouTube, hello and thank you so much. Subscribe on there, leave us a reply, give us a comment, very helpful. I'm trying to to respond to those as much as I can. We're also on social media though. Knuckles and Gloves Podcast is on Facebook and Instagram. Then we're also on Twitter individually. We're also there. My boy, Eris Pina, is there as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor, I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. So give us a follow, say hello. We'll say hi back.
2: Absolutely. Talk to you soon, Eris. Have a good one, yeah.
1: Later, everybody.